Well, hey, 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 everyone. This is Clark with the Disaster Podcaster. We have a great episode number nine. We are in our second season today. Listen, uh, we're going to jump straight to it today. I will tell you, um, really excited about today. I'm on a mission. I have been on a mission for many, many years to bring logical and useful education to this industry so that we can be looked at as the professionals that we claim that we are. And one of those areas are in the discussions about what we price. So to help us moving forward to the future, discuss the, the places we want to go, we've got to talk about some of the big issues that we are plagued with. We can't look to the future and ignore today. Our industry has this conversation all the time about the, get ready for it, O and P, okay? Today, I have a guest that started, of all places, on social media, on Facebook, on Uncle Ed. Ed Cross made a post on his personal or business Facebook page and um, asked about O&P on contents, I believe it was. And we're going to be referencing that conversation. And uh, a very, very nice and smart person started replying, and it turned into a really good exchange of information back and forth. And I'd say somewhere about 75% of that conversation, I said, hold on a minute, let's do a podcast. So we're going to have Lindsay, Lindsay, excuse my accent, Lindsay Douglas today. She is a public adjuster and just an overall claims ninja uh, working out of the state of Texas. And um, I'm going to let her do a lot more in a moment of the explanation and, and her background and then we're going to get going. So I really want everyone to settle in, get comfortable. Thanks for joining. And uh, I'm hoping that we can bring something that can be replayed hundreds of times when the conversation comes up about ONP and then we enter some clarity. So without further ado, let's go. All right. First off, I would like to thank our sponsor. Our sponsor for the Disaster Podcaster this year and last year is Kahi. Kahi is owned uh, by Kevin Dooley. It's a great asset management and telematics company. They do tracking of your equipment, your staff, your team. They've got some, uh, some vehicle tracking as well as cameras for it. Really, really doing some awesome, cool things. But uh, their contributions and their help and their support. I saw Kevin in Reno a few weeks ago at the RIA, and he was uh, just really excited about some really cool things that he's doing. So thanks a lot to Kahi, and thanks to Kevin for supporting not only this podcast, but this industry. Um, Disaster Podcaster is a weekly podcast, but more like a radio show, except we're not on radio. But we do a live show. Encourage everyone to call in. Uh, here's our number on the screen. Uh, we take live calls with either with myself or with our guests or the combination of both. If you have an opinion or a topic or a question, we certainly get a lot of, uh, of, of engagement out of when people call a regular everyday people that are uh, much smarter than us. So 
wanted to tell you that we uh, stream this on our YouTube channel and on our Facebook group called at disaster disaster podcaster. So enough of paying the bills, enough of talking about that stuff. I would like to tell you how we got here. Um, a few weeks ago, I want to say probably three to four weeks ago, uh, there was a, a online Facebook conversation on um, started by Ed Cross, Uncle Ed. Um, I don't think Lindsay knows Ed. I can't wait to tell you a little bit more about him, um, but certainly an advocate for this industry and for the people that are in it, and has uh, asking about some O and P. So Lindsay Lindsay Douglas. Uh, started, I didn't know Lindsay at the time, and I barely know her now, so I'm really excited for us to start from a, a really, really cool place of not having a lot of back context, and so it's really, really straight. So I'm just going to bring her in and let her give her uh, her resume and her and tell us stuff like that. Lindsay, hello. Hi. I'm fantastic. How are you? Glad to be so glad to yeah yeah I'm so uh you were quick we I said something about hey would you come on our podcast and I think in about four seconds you said absolutely so thank you for uh agreeing to do this and uh that tells me you're not one to shy away from these types of topics because you probably know a lot about that but why don't you tell the millions of people that are listening no pressure now tell the people that are listening or will listen a little bit about you Sure. So I'm grateful to join the podcast because one of my purposes is to be in service and to teach others uh, the expert knowledge that I have from being in the disaster industry since 2005. My very first disaster was Hurricane Katrina, and it really opened my eyes to the impact that professionals have to a community that wouldn't otherwise be able to recover after a major catastrophe. And I've been fortunate enough to be invited to speak at lots of industry events for contractors and lawyers, and I am also interested in um, this topic because it impacts uh, nearly every claim that's ever been filed in the U.S. So it, there's really not a consumer that's not affected by this conversation. No. So yeah, I, I grew up in Florida. Uh, my parents had a construction company in Florida. I started there uh, in 2008. I moved to Texas. I'm not from here, but I got here as fast as I could, as <laughs> I they it. say. And I chased the hurricane here, of course, uh, Hurricane Ike in 2008, and I just mm -hmm. never left. Uh, and so I wanted to thank you for having me on the show. Great, today. yeah. Hurricane Ike was quite a quite a hurricane. That was um, I was there working down more like Galveston Pearland area. Got hit pretty hard, but it affected inland quite a way so uh lindsay you said two things i want to point out um i love that you said that you commit yourself to be in service and i think that is a huge recipe for success in this industry people don't people that don't like to help other people don't usually last very long in the the restoration disaster recovery because you're seeing people in sometimes some incredibly stressful ways so I, I consider myself to be in service not only to the communities but to those that are best suited to help those in the community because I can't help every homeowner or business owner, but I can try to help as many contractors so that they can touch more people. So that's my 
That's my Absolutely. magnitude, and I think that probably aligns with yours. But, you know, you talked about the community. I was also in Katrina um, for a long time, and I think there's a lot of talk about contractors that are crooked and taking advantage of people and doing bad work and watch out. You know, there's certainly a lot of insurance and, 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 and political-sided that warn the public, but but there's a lot that do a really good work, and I, I would love to champion that a whole lot more. I mean, of course, we that do it well, those of us that do it well, don't want the people doing it wrong either, just as bad as anybody else does because right. it makes us all look like it, there's no trust there. But um, thank you for, for bringing that up because I, I do agree with you. Um, you live in Houston area-ish now, right? So North Houston? I do. I, I've been in Houston since 2008, and I recently moved out to Lake Conroe, which is north of Houston, and enjoying the yeah, lake got a life. lot of sunburns that came from uh, Lake Conroe. So, yeah, it's a beautiful <laughs> area, and Houston is reaching out further and further all the time. Anyone here that knows about Houston, it's just it's just growing. It's just growing so much, and I don't know. One day it'll be a suburb of Austin. <laughs> It is unbelievable. Well, cool. Growth, well, listen, sure. I like to I, I like everyone to know that we do have a hard stop for your time. You have some very important um, things to do, and so we're gonna we're gonna kind of breeze through things. I'm gonna tell everybody: make sure you call in. The number is eight three three two six two twenty four ten. No one's called in yet, but usually it takes people a, a little bit to wake up, so or get get over the nerves or something like that. So. Lindsay, I'm going to be looking at the screen. I'm not going to share it. I thought about doing that, but I'd like to keep the focus a little oops, a little bit on us. Um, Ed Cross on April 2nd. That's actually the date. So we are not quite a month ahead of that, but not too far. Um, I'm investigating what O&P claims for contents are evaluated on a case-by-case basis. And he made an image that says, has Allstate told you? O&P is never warranted for contents. Please send examples to, to Ed Cross. Uh, anyone that doesn't know Ed Cross, Ed Cross is the restoration lawyer, has helped thousands of contractors and homeowners based out of California, and he's now the director of the AGA initiative for the Restoration Industry Association. So he's doing a lot of things to help with on the legislation side and the lobby side. Um, some really cool things that are happening there, and I, I know it's a big battle. So thank you, Ed, for that service, and thanks for bringing this topic up to allow Lindsay and I to meet today. So, Lindsay, I think you were the first comment on here, and um, I'm looking at it and it says, no insurance company will pay G general contractor O&P on content claims, and honestly, I think that that is the right call. Can you put that into some context for us? Sure. Um, essentially, I want to make it clear that I am a supporter of general contractor overhead and profit. In fact, I've been teaching at conferences like the International Roofing Expo and others uh, for more than six or eight years about this topic because I believe strongly that damages relating to the building portion of the claim should include overhead, general contractor overhead and profit, uh, no matter the number of trades. So I wanted to get that out there because I think where we'd like to kind of divide the line is 
where does it stop when it regard to other coverage lines under the policy, like personal property or additional living expenses, or in a commercial aspect, your business personal property or your income loss. So when you talk about the way a policy is underwritten and how the replacement cost limits are set in the valuation limits of the policy, I think that's where the basis of my opinion came from, from the insurance side, is that general contractor overhead and profit is built into the replacement cost value on the dwelling and the building coverage limit. So the things related to the home or the business construction. Um, if I've actually testified about this in a case where an insurance company came after a contractor with over a hundred felony counts for billing general contractor overhead and profit on claims stating that it was fraudulent. Um, I supported the fact that I was able to reverse engineer the policy that this insurance company ended up, you know, some getting the state involved over on over a hundred claims. Um, and I was able to demonstrate that it's part of the replacement cost value of the building to include the subtrades, miscellaneous items, taxes, and a markup for general contractor overhead and profit by using um, software that basically sets the replacement cost limit. And I believe that it's warranted no matter the amount of trades. Yeah. I think what this post was very interesting to me because I don't see people talking about this topic of general contractor overhead and profit on content claims. Apparently, Ed Cross and I are friends on Facebook because I saw his post on his personal page. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And so I just kind of put that out there and boy, did it open a can of worms because I think there was, I don't know, dozens and dozens there of were. comments. And it was, it was really interesting because I love yeah. the debate. I mean, that's just something I like to learn. I like to teach. I'm a strong believer that the student and the teacher make the teaching together. And so like, I'm always wanting to learn from other people and then apply that knowledge. And I noticed that there may have been some confusion about the intention of what the difference is between overhead and profit and general contractor Correct. overhead and profit. So I wanted to kind of get your feedback yeah, on that. Let's come back to that for a minute. I want to talk about something else. So, um, you know, I'm listening to, you know, I, I first I want to tell you that I'm a strong believer and supporter of the UPPA law. I know that not everyone is. I, I tell contractors constantly, you've got to know wherever, what state you're in and what the laws are, stay in your lane and do not represent the customer as a public adjuster and attorney if you do not have the legal rights and license to do so. I try to keep things simple k-i-s-s -S, i'm a simple east texas guy um 
I tell contractors, you are a contractor hired for a narrow scope of work about a narrow set of things, which would include repair, replace, clean, dehumidify, whatever it is. I don't find the contractor should not be overly involved with the policy language and, and helping the customer dig through that and decipher that. Because that's where, because if you don't know what you're doing, you can actually make things much worse and give bad direction. So I think we're probably aligned there. And I know Texas really takes UPPA very, very serious. I'm a member, a professional member of the APA, the American Policy Association with with that team. And I know the IRE that you're talking about, Dimitri and some of those folks. But um, I, I certainly like to, I like to keep a contract in their lane saying charge bill invoice for the rate that's specific to your company and your overhead the profit margin you need to survive and be thrive and grow and whatever your goals are and, and stay in that lane. Um, and so I think obviously that's where it gets greedy. And I think this, I don't want to go with too many different areas, but I know that trying to get involved when they get into entanglements with the, the insurance company begins to make people start to reach for things to charge for that, tries to make them say, well, if I fluff up my bill when they cut it, I'll be right where I need to go. I, do you see that happening quite a bit? I think that maybe that's true on the restoration side. Yeah. Uh, yeah. However, I mean like the remediation mm -hmm. side. However, I do know that after speaking at events like the International Roofing Expo and a lot of other conferences, lot of the roofers don't write estimates yeah. on what the cost to repair or replace mm -hmm. the roof is. They rely on the estimate from the insurance company. Um, and I think that that's a mistake. I think that a contractor yeah. should be extremely familiar with their mm -hmm. costs on labor material and have a practice of marking mm -hmm. that up based off their required profit and overhead. And no one has ever said 20% is the right markup. Yeah. I'm just saying direct costs of you know materials, labor, and miscellaneous items, equipment, marking those things up so that you can earn a uh, reasonable profit on every job and stay in business in the long term, uh, making sure your overhead's taken care of so that you can continue to serve communities that you're I involved like in. Um, I think that I may have a little bit of with the unauthorized practice of public mm -hmm. adjusting, the UPA, um, I have, you know, mixed feelings sure. about it because for one, it's all good on paper to not, you know, you don't want to act like a public adjuster or practice law or do anything that you're un not authorized to do. However, 95% of the claims out there aren't going to get a public adjuster or a lawyer. Their contractors are the first line of defense to the consumer after a disaster or a loss. And so it's natural for the consumer to want to ask the person they're relying on to tell them how much, what is damaged, what is the cost, 
these basic questions. And it is extremely difficult to make sure that you don't cross the yeah. line when especially you you know the answer <laughs> you know so it's it's difficult and i've had to do that wearing different yeah. hats right i've been a public adjuster since 2008 however i've also been a policyholder appraiser mm. and you can't discuss yeah. coverage in an appraisal you stick to scope, scope of, work. of work price what caused the damage in some states and you focus on those things. So it's like sometimes difficult when you know the answer on the policy side from your public adjusting work to keep that line yeah. in mind. So I do understand how frustrating that can be. Um, and unfortunately, they have made uh, examples that have been devastating to Texas consumer yeah. law in regards to these issues. If you look at Lon Smith roofing and, and the class action uh, lawsuits that are you know being fought out now over contract language that put them in a bad position of acting like a public adjuster without a license. So there are real consequences for these types of things, especially when you have people like Steven Badger working for defense, utilizing the Texas Department of Insurance and the Attorney General Office as their personal attack dogs yeah. uh, to intimidate contractors and claim professionals from doing their yeah. job. So it's it's a war it out is. there and it, on and the it's, industry. It's outweighed. Um, so Doug Quinn, very close friend of mine, Doug Quinn has been traveling the country with me for the last few weeks and the coming three weeks, a few more. I have something called the Alliance of Independent Restorers. So I am more, my background is in the remediation, restoration, emergency services side, more than the GC. So I know some of these conversations won't be apples and apples. They'll be apples and oranges in some ways. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Doug and I, uh, he has a, a presentation for the APA. I'm trying to get the APA and, and, and restorers to understand where you have to stop and you cannot advocate for your client, there needs to be somebody that does. Some people may not believe the APA right. is it, but it's a start. It's a, it's a, it's something that you can do. I agree. You go to storms, you've got, they've got all the badgers, all, all the, all the stacked up attorneys and, and consultants and engineer firms stacked against it. But I would, I would also argue that does this occur in the medical and the, the automotive. So if I wreck my vehicle, the auto body shop is not fighting with me on recovery for my vehicle. And then medically, the doctor is not. You need a lawyer. I, I agree with you that the homeowner, especially on the emergency services side, I mean, we see people when they're absolutely at their most heightened adrenaline and the crisis, crisis and, and trauma. trauma. And the empathy that we have is escalated to 11 out of 10. And I think that's great it's a great asset to have but i also think it can be a detriment because then your your empathy runs into sympathy and then you start adjusting your bill and you start taking on the customer's burden of what they're going through although it's not your burden to bear so that's that's another conversation but uh i want i want to move to this Lindsay. Uh, I, thank you for clearing that up I, I think you did say there's a difference between o and p and gc o and p and i certainly will come back to that in a moment 
one of the big things that got a lot of people talking on the post here was about contents of people's personal property. Um, and, and you made a comment here. I feel like I've got you on the stand. Yeah, if I'm reading what you wrote here, uh, you basically... <laughs> Good book, practice the book for crack, tomorrow. Yeah. So you basically make a, a statement and, a, and a, an observation that the rates and what... Okay, here it is. What I'm saying is... Okay, I had Surpro. Oh, I shouldn't have mentioned them. Oh, Surpro. Bid a content pack out, store and reset $10,000. I had a local mover bid the same job, $3,000. What I'm saying is that mitigation companies charge rates higher than the typical typical market value outside of claims industry. And then to mark up 20% on top of that is already a high pricing model is absurd. I'll agree with the last part. Um, I think what I believe, um, let's just use this water bottle. People don't believe I drink water. They think I drink Dr. Pepper all the time. They would be right. That, the bottom of my receipt does not, I don't pay whatever, $20,000 for this. I pay, I pay $1.50 for a bottle of water or a case or whatever. O&P is not a line item at the bottom of that. They have lo- what I call baked in or loaded their rates to be inclusive of all the costs they need to recover to stay in business, to produce more water, to shelve it, to warehouses, to distribute. That's a price to do that but they also have a company full of people that know their numbers and know down to the pla- the extruded plastic what the pellets cost per pound and how many they can move in an hour and things like that i think that's where we get a lot of that but you believe that and, and i want to make sure that because those i had some people reach out to me that couldn't wait to call in today and i hope they do you're telling are you telling us that you believe that when someone has a fire or a flood and their contents need to be moved out that have been impacted with maybe unsanitary water, they're wet, they have fire, that a moving company should do that? Is that That's kind of what I want to clear up. I am not saying that that's who should do that. I was giving an yeah. example on a personal mm-hmm. claim, which, mm-hmm. by the way, I had a sewer backup. <laughs> two floods and a biohazard where I hired a remediator. Mm. So I, on top of my professional career of dealing with fire, flood, hurricane, all those things and, and helping my own clients with these issues, I personally experienced it. That adds a whole new layer, doesn't it? Uh, It has opened Mm -hmm. my heart and my mind to what's, the clients are going through and has instilled a sense of compassion that cannot be bought. It's something you have to Mm -hmm. experience Mm -hmm. personally, even with all the resources and knowledge and, and money, it does not prevent you from going down when this happens to yourself. You know, it's an emotional thing. It takes over. It's a physical it's, it's a, a trauma, trauma. It takes over. It, 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 logic yeah. takes a back step for at least a period of time to why you deal with this. I, I teach and coach a lot of contractors. I, I believe in onboarding your customer on day one, but in a trauma situation, you better plan on coming back and specifically doing it on day two and maybe three because they they are not absorbing and comprehending. There's just your brain does something different chemically and, and you're just going through some stuff. So thank you for recognizing that. And the old Maya Angelou uh, poem, people don't remember what you sold them or what you told them. 
everyone just want to know that you care. At that point, they remember how feel. you made at them that feel. moment. They remember yeah. how you sat there quietly while they explained something for the forty eighth time, and you didn't interrupt them and act like their job was their project, their situation was less than important. To I learned my mistake a long time ago, Lindsay. I told a client, a commercial client, it was a Katrina job, wasn't terrible, but I said I, I, I kind of said I've seen much worse. It's a wrong, it's a wrong thing to right. say, and I learned my lesson early in my career, and I was exhausted. You know, six months into it, I was like, the customer didn't care. It's the worst that they've seen. So there you go. I, I don't want to. Yeah, it, it has to do with making someone feel seen mm-hmm. and heard and that what they're going through is mm-hmm. important to you as well as it's we end up facilitating them because we do have a job yep. to do and we do need to get information and things done. Um, however, it is an art form and and I think that there could be some training on be. that. There should be honestly. ongoing uh, in soft the skills. Industry. I tell people all the time. Soft skills, empathy, emotional intelligence, how to facilitate someone when they're experiencing signs of PTSD, which often happen after a disaster. Mm-hmm. They have memory loss. They can't, re- you know, like you said, they're telling you the same thing over and over. And they their don't life, know that. Their life may uh, not be the same ever again. Just it's possible. We've yeah. seen it happen. I uh, One of my core values for my company, core principles we call them, I think it's number six, it's relational and not transactional. Everything's a relationship. It's yeah. not a transaction. And if you do that, the money will come. You, everything you need and want will show up. So, um, But so back to the topic. I, I, yeah, back, back to yeah. contents, contents company that does contents and handles that. I think that they're technically, if they are self-performing that work, with specialists and PPE and training, their cost is much more significant than that of a moving company or standard moving company. And I think that's where some people jump to on that conversation. What do you think? Absolutely. And in fact, further down in the comment thread, uh, there was someone who made an excellent point that the documentation that's necessary and in order to properly submit a claim for these types of reimbursements of itemizing and inventorying the yeah. contents, packing them, um, these are things that regular moving companies yeah. don't do in addition to the type of insurance that gets yeah. carried. I am not suggesting that consumers hire a mover in order to do this type of work. I was saying that I yep. did that on my claim um, and that the drastic difference yep. in cost and even with the factors of, you know, insurance, the additional labor uh, to inventory and document what you pack up and what you unpack eventually, um, and the storage costs and whatnot, those are not something that is factored into the mm-hmm. labor time frame no. for movers. They're um, just not. They're not. And equi- I they're not equipped that. with the people to handle that kind of stuff. They they don't handle your things like they. You just went through something, and then if you want to go get your favorite teddy bear out of the middle of it, they're gonna be like, 
no, you can take all. Yeah. Right. So I think that's, I, I see what you mean now. And, uh, and I, I don't know that a lot. And I think so later, I think some people just didn't realize that, but I, I think I knew what you meant pretty quickly. But I also later down in, you know, I can acknowledge when I might've been harsh with using the word <laughs> absurd and later down the road in the, in the thread, I said, I wish I had used a mm. different uh, word because I in no way meant to discount yeah. the price yeah. model. Uh, but I did want to illustrate that it is not like if you hire a mover, it's going to be a different cost yeah. um, than, and they're doing different yeah. work. Uh, and that was clearly demonstrated by one of the people who yeah. responded. And I agreed yeah. with them. Um, I think where, I wanted to like, de you know, talk mm -hmm. about is from an insurance mm -hmm. standpoint, you know, I have a, a, an agency license as a public adjuster and also a property and casualty agent. And so based on my experience in this industry, I have uh, had a lot of policy and, uh, exposure and experience and, um, what is included in the underwriting process to put together the contract. And so all I wanted to say as far as like, I feel like at what point do we draw the line on general contractor overhead mm -hmm. and profit? I think we draw the line in the building coverage based on my experience as a public adjuster and agent because of how I know the policies are put together. I don't know how the laws are in every yeah. state, and I'm not saying what the laws say, and I know Mr. Cross would be a better um, person to speak to that. I'm saying if the insurance company decides to pay general contractor prof overhead and profit on a personal property line or an income loss line, they're doing so, in my opinion, as a gift on top of what they even owe under the policy because the policy does not get calculated for general contractor overhead and profit on the content coverage line or the income loss coverage line, only on the building. Yeah. So, and then coming into, uh, I think some people immediately jumped on it thinking, it had to do with the number of trades yeah. or I didn't support <laughs> it. That's not right. what I'm saying, man. I don't care if it's a roof only claim. I'm going to add general contractor overhead and profit, and I'm going to seek getting that covered and paid under the policy because I strongly believe based on how the policy is put together that yeah. it's owed no matter uh what. I'll okay. tell you where I think that I, I think, I think there's a, a, I think there's a little bit of a, a line where we might agree to disagree on some things. I hear a lot of language because I think your background takes you to that. I don't believe that what the insurance wants to pay per the policy has anything to do with what I charge. And I don't think you're saying that directly, but I know that's a big thing in this industry is I want to get it covered for the customer, but I have thousands of claims, Lindsay, and I know this is no stranger to you. The right price is between myself and the homeowner, the insured, the policyholder, or I, I treat, it's like a, 
I approach jobs like they're retail. There is insurance involved. They're a stakeholder. We have to professionally acknowledge that. But I will tell you right now that if I price a job and do a phenomenal job and do the work expertly, and I actually save them a lot of money from reconstruction because of my restorative efforts, and my invoice is, I'm just making up numbers, $20,000, and this is not per carrier. They all do it now. They're going to call a pet contractor or send it to a third party, a TPA, look at my pictures that they probably never even arrived on the job site, the carrier or any of their representatives, get a comparative bid based off of what they think industry standards should be. And there is no industry standard pricing. And then they're going to pay the customer. And I got a, I got an example for you. They, and and it probably, I don't want to craft my language around what has exposure I've seen but it happens daily, 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 and things matter. Uh, they they issue you know, twenty thousand dollars is my invoice. They say the customer somebody would have done it for eighty four hundred. By the way, this is an invoice, not an estimate. After the fact, it's not waiting for approval. This was already done. Customers got a check for eighty five hundred. Now they got to come up with twelve, you know, eleven thousand five hundred for the difference. Now I'm the bad guy because I'm charging them more than their insurance. Right. This happens thou- thousands of times time. per day. And it's part of Delay, Deny, Defend, which I'm sure you've read the book. Um, I, I am I am appalled at that, yeah. actually, because I think, just mm-hmm. like you, the price is set <laughs> between the contractor mm-hmm. and the consumer. Period. And sign a in, contract in the, in, with that of, value. End of conversation, right? right. So. End of conversation. If I want to be 52 um, times more expensive than the scumbag Chuck in the truck from uh, Mahia, Texas. I thought I'd throw that in there. If I want to be more because my service is better, if I want to be the Chick-fil-A of the food service industry, then I don't want to do cheaper work. But my price is my price and not a dollar less or a dollar more because I know what it takes to continue to do this and feed the kind of people and pay the people well enough to do the work that I think I could bring. But I'm seeing more and more. And, and this is probably getting off topic, but what the policy said – Customers buy terrible policies all the time. They, they don't, don't know. know. And and, and that's not my, again, I have a lot of empathy, but I also have a lot of reality. That is not, they bought that long before I existed and before they needed me. There's not much I can do that post. Now, I, I don't agree every claim should have a PA on it. I think the PA industry has a lot of work to do to clean itself up to get a better reputation uh, to some people. to myself. I've not had good experiences with PAs in all of my career. I just think that there's, just like contractors, there's a lot of bad ones, but I know some very good ones, and now I know a new one. Um, I think that there is a place and a time where a public adjuster is absolutely what's needed, and especially a good one. And the Texas has a lot of good ones. But I think the premise that every single claim must go to that and every customer needs to be represented by a PA I don't, I'm not there yet. Um, I'm not yeah, there either. I don't think I I've can made, get I've there. I've made a post about that, and then the overwhelming emphasis was every claim should have a public adjuster. So it's interesting. It's just not logistically possible with the no. number of PAs that are licensed in this country. And on yeah. top of that, uh, the ones that are licensed, like I said, 95%, if not more, of claims do not have a public adjuster or lawyer. Yep. 
and I believe that contractors are mm. the first line of defense and the natural extension of the consumer during this process because that's the first people they call outside of their agent, yep. right? So I, 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 I'm with you almost. Um, I also think that there's a over I, I have a, a number, Lindsay, that I, and again, I, I know with thousands of contractors, I've deal with them on big scale, small scale conferences, communities. I only think that, I think less than 10% actually do a really good job and do it right, know, know how to handle a job and, and deal with the customer and even understand enough about insurance about what the customer's going through and to present themselves in a way. That said, there's 90% out there that I don't think that they are in a place to represent that customer. Now, just like a lot of places, our industry is restoration, remediation, or services is wildly uh, unregulated. Un, un, uh, it's a bar to in there are bad actors every in every industry. Copy your salesmen have bad actors, don't they? Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I can relate that in this, what you said in yep. your belief that, you know, 10% you think are doing it right and 90%. I could tell you with my own experience, some of these national storm chasers that go into the area are doing a stack and starve generator of unexperienced uh, salespeople bringing them in like cattle and trying to sign as many as possible and then starving them out and 100%. and i 100 percent. they don't have the knowledge or the experience to do a proper service they don't yeah. know how to cost a job they don't know what the material costs the labor costs they couldn't even write an estimate if they tried um and these are you know, large, large companies that are very well known. Well, it's like McDonald's. Um, Just because McDonald's is large and has the most locations doesn't mean they're the best burgers. So I, when people tell right. me, well, so-and-so <laughs> right. company, and I worked for some large companies, and again, depending on which team you got, you've got some superstars and you got some no-stars. So I agree with that. They also go around and grab people from, uh, you know, rehabs and off the street to do, you know, pick up garbage and then charge, try to charge from, you know, 80 bucks an hour for those. I mean, that all exists, and you're right. That is not specific to contracting. Uh, Lindsay, would you be surprised if I told you I know about two dozen people that began a remediation, restoration, water damage fire company because they had an occurrence at their own home and they witnessed, number one, the bad work that occurred to their own home. Number two, when they saw the invoice compared to the bad service before mentioned and what they charged and what seemingly their perception of what the profit was going to be because they think they only saw them for like eight hours total, they said, I'm going to get in that business. And I think that is what might be a contributor to this overwhelming amount saying the profits are so huge. I'll tell anyone right now, I, I'm, a, I'm a consultant for restoration contractors. I'm a coach and a business coach, and I try to make people smart, have them create a great margin and processes and systems where they can do more of it. To me, now we have franchises and non-franchises. Franchises pay a royalty, sometimes up to 11% of every dollar goes to mothership. 
a really good restoration contractor that's self-performing the work, which most do here, they actually employ people, should be making a net margin of 25% to sustain. Overhead is really high. Most restoration contractors in this country have an average of 32 to 35% overhead, which means every month, turn on their lights. If they don't get one job, it's costing them 35000 out of $100,000 is getting spent to that. Um, training is expensive. Uh, insurance is becoming even more expensive. Uh, ups and downs in the industry. So I, I, I think that's where I would say that GC is hiring a subcontractor who's doing a work job, and you're putting a markup on their work for your time to manage it and organize it and orchestrate and deal with the customer and the complexities and the schedule. Whereas a company that self-performs, like a remediation company, they, they, they absorb all of the costs, the payroll, the marketing, and everything. And I think that's where I wanted to get to real quick because I, I really want to be conscious of your time. I come from a world, I know our industry is heavily Xactimate. I teach on Xactimate all the time, and I wish people would understand that the price published in Xactimate's price data is not the price for you to price your jobs. But everyone does it, and then they complain about it. But Xactimate teaches you or tells you in their terms and conditions it's not global in nature. You should make your own price. It's a place to start. I come from a world, Lindsay, of time and materials, and you and I were talking a little bit about that before, which meant I have a published rate sheet of how much per position – supervisor, technician, specialist, whatever, every hour that they're there, managed by me and being as efficient as possible, I'm going to charge that. We're going to document that every day. I sign in, sign out sheet. And then there's materials, which would be either my equipment from a daily rate of rental or roll of plastic, gloves, mask. I'm going to consume those in a, in, a, in a very systematic fashion, knowing how many people I have, how many times I have to change those gloves a day, how much plastic I have to put down, blah, blah, blah. It's all very measurable. Those rates include, they're loaded, they're baked, I like to call them. They're loaded with my overhead and my profit. Adding a 10 and 10, which it's weird, 10 and 10, I don't know where that ever really came from, but 10 and 10, which is cumulative, it's really 16.74. People, actually, it's not even 20%. But people think no business is really making a living off of just covering 10 and 10. But I don't think now, O&P to me, was reserved for if I did hire a specialist, a sub, an outside company, an MEP, or, or some kind of specialty, an electrician, a plumber, I would do a markup. If I purchase fuel, fuel externally for either a generator or for a vehicle, I charge markup on that because that's an expense I'm incurring and carrying the note for. And then just, you know, hotel per diem, things like that. But not my labor, not my materials that was already in there. And I think that's where a lot of consultants for the insurance company and insurance adjusters catch a lot of contractors double dipping, if you will. Do you agree with that? I do. I think that um, the path of least resistance, honestly, as a remediator is to do it with your total price, including the markup that you want for overhead and profit plus the cost, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that you would have less resistance in getting a bill paid than if you took 
because they're going to assume that you have all that in your base price. And so when you add a markup on top, they're going to start asking about what is your base price, what does it include, and we see that a lot in uh, the roofing yeah, claims, right? right? Um, and I think that from a remediator standpoint, uh, your time and expense, time and material, uh, like you mentioned, the base costs, everything built into your rate sheet, uh, that would be, in my opinion, the best way to get your bills paid the quickest with least resistance from the insurance company. Yep. Um, I do understand that there should be a premium involved because if you did that same project and it wasn't an insurance project and it was retail, you have less uh, time, time involved. Documentation. Yeah. Um, I, and, and yeah, I agree. Uh, so a lot of times it's after hours, it's two o'clock in the morning, multiple visits, lots of touches with the, it's, it's so different. Time materials is adaptable to the complexities of things that you haven't seen yet. Maybe we're going to try to save this flooring, but five days into it, we realize that it's just not laying down. It might need to come out. So it's, you know, without having to supplement so many times, but our industry, you're right. Um, and I believe it's almost like the, 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 red pill and blue pill if you've ever seen the matrix people restoration and remediation companies are heavily still using the exact mate trying to price jobs after it's finished and never telling the customer up front what it's going to be that's a big argument but i have taught hundreds of contractors to get onto a unit price line item pricing slash tnm rate style that's fairly transparent whatever so they do get pushback, uh, a lot of pushback. Carriers, whether especially if you're, you're well, you can't do that if you're on a program, MRP, Managed for Care Program. You, you right. have to, you've signed an agreement, you're going to price it. And how exactly it gets away without the insurance companies with price fixing, I, I don't know. But that's a, I don't that's a whole other topic. It's, it's a racket. racket. That's, it's, you know what? Warren Buffett said, this is the best business in the world. I get to use other people's money. But... <laughs> But I, I think that uh, uh, you will get pushback. And, and I hear it all the time. I see it in emails. And I tell adjusters, don't contact the contractor. Contact the customer. That's who, that's who we're in. You know, hey, your contractor is charging outside of Xactimate. We don't, and we do it. We don't pay non-Xactimate rates. And I said, please put that in writing. I would like the Department of Insurance in Texas, the TDI. I'd like to share that with them. And the Attorney General would love to see what you – are claiming that doesn't exist in your policy language, you're saying you don't do this. I'm really big on policy language, and it matters on both sides. Um, I, I really want to – I think O&P, you're right. It's specifically for certain things, but not – I think it's taken advantage of, and a lot of people are fighting for something that they could easily in, in their built-in pricing. Is that kind of on a summary? What you How do we resolve this argument, Lindsay? Well, just to give you like one example, recently I uh, was able to get an agreement on a metal roof project after a hailstorm in College Station with Chubb. The adjuster and I worked together for go Aggies. Go Aggies. Uh, worked together for months trying to get his supervisor to agree that coating 
the roof would not resolve the hail damage and it needed to be replaced. And we worked as allies and eventually his manager did see it that way. But he came back to me and he told me, like, Lindsay, they won't let me put GCOMP in here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put heavy on general conditions, mm. other things, equipment, things that uh, – and I went back and I got his estimate, and I had actually had a contractor do a hard bid on the project, so I knew exactly what it would cost. And I was able to see that the client was going to be able to restore based on how the adjuster – wrote the scope of work and sometimes we have the opportunity to understand the concept that pigs eat and hogs get slaughtered <laughs> i love it and I love that. we were able to move forward with a resolution despite the fact that yeah i felt like gco and p should have added to the roof but he substituted that for different line items that adjusted for the cost and overall it was a fair evaluation and sometimes it's just like let's come to a resolution instead of being so yeah. rigid about what exactly gets put in um, and that's just one example and I think that it comes down to certain things that are flagged for extra examination yeah. by an insurance company and general contractor overhead of profit is one we of call it things. i teach classes Which, for large loss mastery and we call them audit triggers they're just things in there that are just going yeah. to trigger a person or a system they're just waiting for that to come across i think it's all a chess match i think that's i mean i like the example that they just increase the rate of something but i have seen examples where an insurance carrier will say i can't pay for that but I will let you put some extra equipment on there. So if, if there's ever a situation where I have to falsify what I did, the system is broken. Well, this no. was not work that had been right. performed. This is an estimate. And it was on the yep. estimating side, which I don't feel like would be any, you know, gray yep. area. Like, now if we put that, that equipment was used in the replacement and it wasn't, that's yep. a problem. Um, and like you said, you're invoicing most of the time. It's, and, and I, I tell people all the time, I actually had t-shirts made that has estimate crossed out with a red cross and invoice. Let's make sure that we use the right terms because the word estimate, right. if you send a, uh, and, and, and Lindsay, I know you're about ready to go. I'm about to, I was going to reference this right after everyone. The video link is going to be in the description. I did a video three, four days ago. I had a young man in one of my online communities. He's a project manager. Short version. I work with adjusters a lot. Compliant. I'm not on programs. I did an, a, a job. Sent him the ESX as he requested so he could use my sketch. He asked me for the line items as well. They don't always ask for that. I sent it to him. Days later, sent it back saying, I've made the adjustments to your mitigation. I've sent a PDF over to the customer and issued payment for drastically less than what with he sent an estimate to the customer that the contractor had created with their letterhead and with their opening statement falsified mm. it that's that's fraud that's, that's a, a problem, problem. fraud and that's what his question was is is there an ethics board and i said yes and i pointed him to the right place to put that turn in i think that's an that's not a rule i think that's an exception 
think that's a person that was advocating for their position for whatever reason. But I hear that often enough to where the boxing gloves stay up for most people. The porcupine keeps their quills out because they don't know. I'm going to get in front of this instead of behind it. That happens a lot more. And again, I do an invoice. They'll send out a third party and tell the customer, I'm not paying a dollar more than what Xactimate says. At this point, the customer is afraid that they're going to have to pay out of pocket. I think that's at minimum tortious interference and steering. Hey, I've got a contractor that will come out there. And then, of course, we've got the receivables issue on our side, which is a big problem, Lindsay. Um, we'll do work. We'll put out X number amount of cash, especially on larger losses. We'll put out $100,000 in expenses and sometimes get six months before we get paid. That's not okay. That's not okay. Right. It's, it's not it's okay. It's getting reinvested by the insurance companies. We know the game, what's going on. And I think this is where contractors don't have a voice. The insurance companies are together, whether they're as, you know, label brand, all state and state farm are working together, but they've got a corporate unit around working on processes. Whereas contractors were all divided and everybody's an enemy and everybody's trying to do their own thing and stake their own claim. And I'm only trying to unify our industry in these kinds of interactions that we're doing, help that help people say, don't look at your neighbor that does good work as your enemy. He's your ally because you've got plenty of enemies that are hurting both of you equally. You're stronger together than apart. So um, I agree. O and P is the, the, I love that you said that so many people, three trades. I wish that would stop. That's like the wizard of Oz. It's a myth. Um, I don't know where it came from. I don't know what year. It's much like in our industry, three-day drying. We only pay for your equipment for three days to dry the place. Well, if it's still wet on day three, what do you want me to do? Pull my equipment and let it sit there wet and grow mold? I mean, so those kinds of things happen. But I think that there are myths that people believe, and then ultimately it comes down to the golden rule. Those that have the gold make the rules, and the the contractors think that the the insurance company – is their customer because they're holding the cash and leveraging against them. And it's the big bully. It's the big David and Goliath match that we've all faced our whole life. But the right way to do it is not to cheat and try to bulk up your bills just to make up for it. If you really, really, really want to, if your state allows, how about charging late fees and interest? If you're not getting paid, stick to your invoice. Don't adjust your invoice for the insurance company. It doesn't help the customer. If, you, if you're giving discounts to State Farm or Allstate, they don't need it. They're building stadiums with their names on them. So I, I just want people to have realistic conversations with themselves. But I only spend time with the right people. Uh, if you're a hack and you're just not willing to listen and you're saying, I'm going to – I know people that put extra fans on every job. And I was like, well, you, you're you not like me. You're the problem. You're, you're worse than the insurance company. The right. insurance company that you're mad at – you're worse than they are because you're fraudulently admitting that you're you're committing fraud and defacing the customers that you said you'd protect. But, uh, you know, the, the topic, again, our thread on Ed's page, it cleaned up. I think there was uh, Bebo Crane was the person that said he's, he's such a good guy. He's been experienced a long time. He had some good contextual things to say. And I think we 38 comments later, we came back to a point where it's like, you know, I think we both have good points here, and there's specifics and stuff like that. But I think GC and O&P is a high level. They're different things. GC, O&P, and your general overhead and profit are two different They're two different things, right? Right, because let's just use an example. A general contractor is managing sub-trades. Yeah. There are 
overhead and profit built in within the yeah. subtrades. So there were two separate financial they categories. Are. I would tell you a GC that lives out of his truck and only hires subtrades doesn't have a $400,000 a year marketing budget. Um, that's what it takes to get right. to, to pay Google pay-per-click. It's $400,000 sometimes for, you know, depending on how big your company is and the market you're in. So I think that in closing, what I'll ask everyone to do, Lindsay, is if you go to conferences and go to classes, make sure those are less to do with the technical aspects of the work that 4 you do and start going to classes and learn the financial side, the business side of your company and understand how every little piece of that impacts everything you do. And you might, they, they might find themselves like Dave Ramsey. You might find yourself that you're making a lot more money than you thought you were. You're just kind of cheating yourself out of it. Right. And it's a lot, a lot of this kind of work is a craftsmanship yeah. and artistry. Yeah. And a lot of that type of craftsmanship, especially like woodworking and whatnot you have people who are artists in their work but not necessarily good business there's a and so i think there is most definitely uh, a need for people like you to help uh, business owners understand the financials and how different pricing models affect their bottom line and running those models out and showing them hey if you charge this, this is what would happen after so much value. And people just kind of get lost into the flow of the disaster. It, it's a yeah. vacuum. You get, you get sucked, sucked in. in. And, and you have to be extremely careful that you don't overextend yourself because it kind of creates this vacuum. I like, I like contractors to think of themselves as business people and not contractors, um, specialists that run a business that happens to do that thing that they do. And I like them to be visionaries. Think of the, you know, back yourself up to 5,000 feet. Stop living in the, the now and think about the the next big window of, of things we're going to do. Because we may be fighting over $50 when we need to be thinking about $10,000. So, um, And we're definitely having, you know, just unbelievable change in the supply chains, in the technology. market. Uh, it's Data. really, I've never quite seen it be so interrupted with the supply chain mm -hmm. in my career. Uh, the materials, everything is so price volatile of, Price right of gas, now. labor shortages. I mean, there's just so many complexities that are keeping everybody on their heels. But, hey, listen, um, I'm watching the clock. I'm at your window. You've got to take care of your thing. Lindsay, I, I absolutely am floored and thank you for coming on. I want... Anyone listening and watching this later, if you leave a comment on the YouTube channel, it will come up, and I'll make sure I reach out to Lindsay, and if it's something I can't answer, I'll make sure Lindsay gets a response and we'll get it back to you. But I want this thing to be eternally sitting in the interwebs and providing content and value to everyone that ever watches it. And reach out to Lindsay. I'll put your uh, – do you have a website or you have a, a business number? Yeah, you, my website is uh, www.tda, like Tom, dog, apple, claims with an S, dot Perfect. Com. We'll put that in the description so people have that URL. Uh, if you're in the southern, you're anywhere in Texas, if you're anywhere down there, you've just in the, I know a lot of contractors always say, I think I need a PA. I know a few, I now know one more. And um, I wish you luck. And if you ever need anything from me on the restoration remediation side for some context or some expert witness or something, 
I will do my best. But um, I appreciate you coming on. Thank All you right. So Have much. a great afternoon, okay? Bye-bye.